We're picking up where we left off last week, and and we're going to begin a kind of a tough passage of Scripture, but it starts off in a good way. Because he, remember, as we recall, Habakkuk was, he was waiting for his, his response, the Lord's response. And this is what we get. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. You may be seated. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Father, make our hearts tender to what we need today. Make your word live to us. Show us our Savior, show us ourselves. And make your word live to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. It's a common verse we all know. I've titled it, The Righteous Live by Faith. Trying to be as original as possible, as I always am. Um, I figured I wouldn't get too creative there. But what I want us really to look at, that we're going to tackle today, and I'm going to work through this as best I can, but it's going to take a little bit because there's some unpacking in these little verses, is that circumstances ought to never determine our faith circumstances ought to never determine our faith. Our faith ought to be the lens through which we navigate our circumstances. Being tested, as Habakkuk was tested, will stretch our faith. It's intended to. But knowing that our times are in his hands is a deeply settling thought and truth when we are struggling with things in life when we can't make sense of what's in front of us. And you know, the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in his letter. He said this in chapter 15 and verse 4. He said, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. We might have hope. I'm going to repeat this. Because he did so, I like to hear these things myself, I hope it's helpful for us all. He wrote that and he did so as an encouragement and as an instruction to the people of Rome to remind them, pointing them in the direction of the only reference that the people of God have in their times of struggle, his word, his word. His word is given to us for encouragement for harmony within the body, within our own spirits, as it were, in the midst of whatever circumstances that they find themselves in and that we find ourselves in. It is given for our encouragement, which begs the question for us as I was taking a look at this, how do we all handle crises? When we are confronted with things, how do we address them? Perhaps a moment in time that makes absolutely no sense at all to you. How does one stay steady in the storms of life when our boat gets a little topsy-turvy? With questions sometimes that are just so hard to grapple with in our life that we can't get our hands around. Or worse yet, we keep asking for answers and we don't get answers. But we know that God hears us and yet his answer is silence. How do we wrestle with those? Well, the challenge here for us is that the believer has all that they need in this book. God is not silent 
Read your scriptures out loud. He speaks. We have all that is needed in this book, in prayer and instruction. We can be, and we ought to be equipped. We ought to be encouraged, and we ought to be armed for every battle that comes our way, every spiritual battle that there is, because God has given us what we need, most especially in those times when we don't understand what's going on. God himself, while that divine mystery that everybody studies or, or wrestles with, he's beyond our comprehension. Anybody who tells you he's got God figured out, find another way to go and don't talk to that person. God is beyond comprehension. And at the same time, I've said this before and I say it again, God is no cosmic trickster. He's not out there playing games with us like he's some sort of created God. And not only does he not play games or make things so unclear for us that our efforts in order to try and figure out what God is doing, seemed to be a wasted exercise in trying to know him and to understand him. He has given each and every one of us what we need right here. That's what we have. John the Apostle makes it very clear to us at the end of his gospel when he writes this statement. He tells us this. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. So we don't even have all the information. John makes that clear. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In essence, what he's telling his readers, and that's us, as well as those in Ephesus and other places, is that we have clear, we have sufficient evidence in the book of scriptures to understand our need even if we don't understand the reasons with what we're going through. So there's not a need for us to do what we tend to do, dive into the unclear to try and figure out these things. Most especially in our struggles, the last thing that we want to do is dive into a fog bank trying to figure out what God's doing. But that's what we try to do often. We try to dig into these obscure things and figure them out without going to the scriptures and all of that. No, No, we don't need that. We don't need to dive into a fog bank. There are mysteries which only God knows and only God can explain. We will never know what they are. Sometimes he answers those mysteries and makes it clear to us. And guess what? Sometimes he doesn't. A scripture he gave me this morning that I was reminded of is in Deuteronomy 29, 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of his law. So we know what we need to know. So when we tackle things in life and in the Bible, we have to know that there's always going to be a faith piece within that, because we're not going to understand everything. We're not going to get our hands around the great mysteries of who God is or sometimes why he does the things that he does within our lives because they really don't make sense. But we have what we need clear for us. But we need to remember the tension is is that there's always a faith piece. As with anything in life, we have to exercise faith. We have enough to believe but not enough to stand outside of faith. We always have enough to believe. So we're not just believing in something willy-nilly. But it's substantive. But we still need our faith. Because if we didn't need our faith, we would have no need of God. Remember, he's not the cosmic trickster. He's God. 
He's beyond understanding and comprehension, so he gives us what we need. Habakkuk finds himself in just such a position this morning. This is what we're looking at in chapter 2 in this short, short section. It's a very loaded piece of scripture and one in which we find God's response. Now, we're only tackling a few verses, and you'll figure out why as we unpack this whole thing. Verse 4, as I have said, is quoted how many times in the New Testament? Three times in the New Testament. Okay, so what? Who cares? Well, here's why we ought to care. When the Holy Spirit, who is the author behind the authors who write the text of Scripture, encourages them and tells them to draw from this verse on three separate occasions, that ought to get our attention. We ought to ask ourselves, why? Why here? Why this verse? What's the purpose? What's the importance of it? Well, the importance of it for us is to understand to know exactly what this is supposed to apply and look like within our lives. In Romans 1, Paul's talking within the context of idolatry and God giving people over to every kind of worldliness and wickedness when he quotes this. So just before laying all that out, that this is the world in which you live in, the people who don't believe in God, this is what it looks like. You can't expect Christian behavior from non-Christian people Before he lays all this out, in the midst of that, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also for the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So in the midst of all of the things that are going on, this is how the righteous operate. It doesn't look like it's supposed to, But this is how the righteous are to operate. He then has to unpack it for the Galatian church. Because in Galatia, he's dealing with being bound by the law and by performance-based acceptance. People feel they have to do and do and do and do in order for God to be happy with them. Why? Because they're being taught poorly. Judaizers are coming in and they're challenging in exactly the opposite direction of what Paul had taught. They're telling these new converts that they have to become Jewish first. You have to be circumcised. You've got to obey all the laws. You've got to do all this stuff. Then in Jesus, God will accept you. And no. Paul says, no. In the midst of this, you need to understand this. Galatians 3.11. It is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous live by faith. Anyone who studied the law understands that Abraham wasn't bound to the law. The law was given 400 years after Abraham showed up. He lived by faith. And then finally in Hebrews 10, which we're going to unpack as we get towards the end, it's the last place that he touches it. It's more closely related to Habakkuk than any other one. In the midst of trial, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of struggling because of their belief, the wicked seem to rule. They seem to get away with whatever they want. They seem to do whatever they want. In the midst of that, the people of God are trying to figure out what we're supposed to do. And the challenge was to go back, kind of like they did in Galatia, to maybe if we just open up the sacrifices again and we start doing this, that maybe that'll work. No, that's that's not how it's supposed to work. In the midst of all of those challenges, that ought to sound familiar to us because with his faith wavering, this prophet Habakkuk is being encouraged and he's being challenged at the same time. You see, before God gets into how it is he's going to deal with these Babylonian people, he has to put this prophet's feet, as it were, back on some solid ground because he's kind of a donkey on the edge here. He gives Habakkuk just what he needs, as God always does. 
helping him to understand that everything's going to be okay. Listen, I, I see that it's not looking okay right now, but everything's going to be okay. Even though you may not live to see that truth that it's going to be okay, that day will happen. And that's something that we need to really rest in. We may not see it, but that day will happen. Wanting to ensure that it's not forgotten to time, what does he tell Habakkuk to do? The Lord gives him a command. He answered me, write the vision. It's the first time he says this. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets. Don't make it cryptic. Make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. In other words, it's not going to happen right away. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. It's going to happen. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Look at I got it under control. Write it down on a tablet, Habakkuk. Make it very plain for people to understand. And for goodness sake, make it permanent. I don't want this to be lost to the wind. Make it permanent. Put it on stone, not on parchment. I want to make sure that this vision stays because it's going to take a while to get here. It was a minimum of 70 years before they even came back from captivity. But it'll take a while, but it'll get here. Get here, it will. And get there, you will. That's a guarantee of God, no matter what situation we're in. Don't think for a moment that because things take a long time that they won't come to pass. Don't ever think that way. Because they will always come to pass if God has promised that they will. Why? Because God is faithful. But we need to remember something else. He is also very purposeful in everything that he does. God is purposeful in everything that he does. You see, this complaint, and at times the mocking of God kind of lallygagging, where is your Jesus, where is your Jesus? We read it in the New Testament, don't we? That was pretty prevalent in the time of Peter and Paul. You keep saying Jesus is coming back, Jesus is coming back. Well, man, it's been on about 30 years, and all you keep saying is he's coming back. Where is he? Peter responds to such things this way. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is faithful to his promises all the time, but he is also very purposeful in his delay. Why? Peter makes it clear. He doesn't want anybody lost. Faithful to his promises, purposeful in his delay. He does not want anybody lost. Peter says he is patient with you. I found that interesting, coming from the most impatient man on the planet. Do you think the apostle at that point in writing his letter really learned to appreciate the Lord's patience with him? The grace that God gave him? I think so, absolutely. All of his mess-ups, his boastfulness, his you know, bragginess, his mouth would write checks that the rest of his body never had the ability to cash all the time. His betrayal of Jesus literally by not denying that he even knew who Jesus was. All on his mind as he wrote, God is faithful and he is patient towards you. Peter understood the grace of God is seen in the patience of God, not only towards his people, but also toward those not his yet. We need to remember that. 
That's common grace. I wonder, though, when we get frustrated with the way the world works, with the way things happen, are we grace-filled? Are we, are we patient with the way God's working things out in our lives? Even when I hurt, I will trust in you. Can we do that? When we don't understand people, when we don't understand the things that are going on in our lives, when we can't figure out why they just aren't going as we seem to think they ought, the things in our life? Can we trust that he's got it under control? When we aren't getting what we want, do we lose our patience? Do we stop living these grace-filled lives that shows our trust in the Lord? You see, everyone is struggling with something, right? Everyone is struggling with something. Be prayerful. Be prayerful. Every single human being is walking a road that we don't understand. I think sometimes we need to train ourselves to think the best in people as opposed to instantly thinking the worst first. Human nature inclines us to automatically think the worst because things didn't go the way we think they ought to go. So we instantly think the worst in somebody. Perhaps we should start thinking the best in somebody because frankly we have no idea what people are walking through. We have no idea what challenges a brother or sister in Christ has gone through in a given week, do we? Paul says this, Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Now, that doesn't mean that we ignore bad things. It simply means perhaps we ought to rewire our brain to think correctly. You see, because that so far is exactly what Habakkuk's issue is. That's why he's frustrated. That's why his faith is wavering. Things aren't working the way he wants them to work out. He's wondering why God isn't listening to him. Well, God is listening to him. God just isn't answering him the way he wants him to answer him. You see, in the assurance of the gracious, patient, creator God, Yahweh says, dude, that's my version. I'm not sure there's a Hebrew word for that, but relax. Relax, I'm pretty sure I've got this one under control. You know, you can't see next Tuesday and what you're going to have for supper. You need to trust me. You need to trust me. Why? Because God knows the beginning and the end. We don't know what tomorrow holds, but we know that he knows the beginning and the end. And I can hear the Lord speaking to him again. I get it. I get it. You don't like me using these people. It makes perfect sense to me why you don't. And it even looks like I don't care about what's happening. Nothing could be farther from the truth because I do care. My judgment will come and it will not delay. That's what he's saying here. It's going to. But I'm purposeful. There's things that need to happen. The unrighteous, the Lord recognizes. He knows that they are arrogant. He knows that they are fat-headed. He knows that they're crooked. He knows they're evil. He knows that they do things that they're not supposed to do. But he is also purposeful. He wants them saved as well. He knows that they overstep their bounds. He knows that I overstep my bounds. He knows that you overstep your bounds. But he is graceful nonetheless. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It's a kind word that the Lord gives. He probably wouldn't be invited back too many times to preach. His soul is puffed up and is not upright within him. 
He's fat-headed, he's arrogant, and he doesn't think the way the Lord wants him to. But here's the deal. In the midst of all of these things, God is. Not will be, not may be, not was. God is. In the midst of it all, he's got everything under control for all of us. And anyone who is righteous will live by his faith. That's why it's important, this verse, isn't it? Try to unpack this. Now, we need to take a look at it, this verse, just a little bit, because I think it's a little bit important. When you read this, it seems as though the active agent in this faith, faith part could be one of two. It doesn't seem to be singular. Now, I'm not a smart man, but I did figure out these words, at least, so... If you're impressed with my very limited knowledge of Hebrew, don't ask me any questions beyond what I'm dealing with right here because I'm stupid beyond what I got for you. But here's what I do have, okay? First, if we take a look at this verse this way, as it is written, quotes his faith, the righteous will live by his faith, in that manner as we read it, the righteous would be us living by our faith before the Lord. Operating within that, we stand on that faith before him as righteous people because he is God exercising that faith given to us by God in order that we may trust him, especially in the not or the now and the not quite yet of his promises that we live in. We have to exercise that faith. That's us, right? And I don't think that's wrong. But I don't think it's entirely right either. I think it's only part of the story. Because I think in the context of what God is saying here, his promise to do what he says And in that promise, the righteous live by his faith. I had to ask this question. Whose faith? And the only answer I can come up with is God's faith. Ultimately seen in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. The Galilean carpenter, the perfect Israelite, fulfilling every single one of God's promises that he said here. The Messiah King. His faith. He was faithful to the end. Right up to the cross when they tacked him there. They swung him up and he said what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Faithful to the end. Whose faith? His faith. What is it Paul says in his second letter to the church in Corinth? Right in the first chapter he says this. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaim among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in him it is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter the amen to God for his glory. For his glory. You see, because of the faithfulness of the Son of God to the covenant promises of God, which we see in Habakkuk, we now stand in his faith before God. Now, I exercise that faith, but it is Jesus' faith that is given to us as a gift. And then we grow in that. The faithfulness of the Son of God to the covenant promises of God allow us now to stand in his faith in the presence of God. Now, is it our faith to exercise in this life? Yeah, it is. See, that's the conundrum, isn't it? But the righteous live by and because of his faith. See, our exercise of faith is no less than Habakkuk's is supposed to be in this story that we have from this prophet. In the middle of trial, in the middle of struggle, a world in which chaos and conflict is the rule of the day, we are called to stand. 
faithfully present within whatever situation God has placed you in. With all of its trials, with all of its struggles, with all of its unknowns, with all of its fear, with all of its successes and victories, we are called to stand faithfully present within. It's the command of Paul in Ephesians 6, where we are equipped by God through the Holy Spirit of God with the armor of God. Why? Because in this world you will have trouble. Now, I know we don't like that because that makes us uncomfortable, but the Bible tells us that we are going to struggle. We are going to have trouble. But what did Jesus say? He said, take heart, for I have overcome the world. I've overcome it all, even if it doesn't make sense to you. And he has equipped you and I to be a victorious overcomer by faith in him. And if you've got nothing else to hold on to, hold on to the faith that he gives you. Because the righteous live by his faith. He will hold you up in that storm. When you don't even have enough faith, the word promises that he has you. And he will hold you. You see, the writer of the Hebrews was unpacking this when quoting Habakkuk. That's why Hebrews is so important for us to understand. He's applying it in just the same way that the prophet would have understood it. You see, in the midst of persecution, unjust treatment, seemingly unchecked evil, wickedness in the world, the people of God were being beaten, arrested, persecuted, pushed off to the side, mocked, all of those things, and they're wavering. Perhaps we do need to go back to the old systems. Perhaps we do need to start sacrificing animals again. Perhaps we do need to do that. And the writer of the Hebrews says, no, that once for all sacrifice has been named. And it's been claimed, as it were. I'll redeem that little nonsense, won't I? It's been named and claimed in the person of Jesus. He is the once for all sacrifice. He entered into the Holy of Holies. We now have the ability to approach the throne of grace with confidence on that day. Why? Because Jesus made the way. And we stand in his faith in the midst of all of these things. But the difference between the people in the, right, in the letter to the Hebrews and the people that Habakkuk is dealing with is that it's no longer Babylon. Guess who it is? It's Rome. So that's why it doesn't matter who's in power. The best of men are men at best. And we cannot waver or change based upon who sits in power. Because sometimes it's good and sometimes it's bad, but Jesus always is. So we hold on to that. See, he says this, the person, he or she, we don't know. And I'm not that bold to say who. Somebody wrote this letter and it's been preserved for us. He, he states this doctrine of faith. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. I'm going to stop there just for a second. Let's just let that sit, as I, I, I'm coming close to a close here, but I just want us to just hear that. In this country, because I can't speak for other countries, but as a pastor, I get very concerned I have people talk real boldly about how they'll take anything for Jesus but they can't show up to church on Sunday because the weather's bad now I'm not for nothing I'm not being disrespectful I'm just saying if we're going to talk big we need to make sure we can walk big 
Because you see what's going on here? Is to believe in Jesus costs. It costs these people their houses, their property, their belongings. It costs them prison. And we get cranky because we can't pray on the village green. Oh, we're being persecuted. No, you're not. Come to me when someone's whooping up on you because you're preaching Jesus and him crucified. Let me know when you've been spit on or hit or arrested for the cause of the gospel of Christ. We have got it so easy in this country, and yet we think we've got it so hard. We don't. Listen to this. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and abiding one, That's the doctrine of faith. In the midst of all of this nonsense, it looks like you're on the losing end of the stick. You're in prison. You're getting beat up because you refuse to say, I won't believe in Jesus. There's your faith piece. That's the doctrine. When you've got nothing else to hold on to, we've got to believe the truth of God, that he is faithful and we need to be faithful. That's why we get the therefore. In the midst of all of this, therefore, right there. Well, what's it there for? Because he then gives us application. Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet in a little while, in the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. In the midst of all of that, it's horrible. And then they say this, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Now, if we stop there, that will be a little bit shaky. And I'm glad that whoever wrote this didn't stop there because we got a big fat butt right there. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. That's encouraging. That's a good application. But of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So we can stand on that. If the righteous live by faith, we will not waver. We will not waver. You see, that could very well have been written to Habakkuk, couldn't it? It could very well have. But it was written to Christians living within one generation of the promise of the return of Jesus. He, would, he told them that he would come and they would not delay. You see, Jesus fulfilled that promise ultimately, didn't he? Jesus was the one that fulfilled that. And now here we are, some people seemingly thinking that it's slow. Why? Because it's been 2,000 years on and Jesus hasn't come back yet. And we wonder why it is he hasn't answered anything. Well, you see, in that context, in understanding all of these things and the way our world looks... To me, that makes Hebrews 11.1 become so very hopeful and so very important to us. Let's think that through as we close. Here's what Hebrews 11.1 says. Now faith is the assurance of the things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. So what that means is that if God promised everything was going to be okay in the end, guess what? Everything's going to be promised. It's going to be okay in the end even if we can't see it, even if it doesn't make sense. Why? Because God promised, he promised, Jesus is coming back, and it hasn't happened yet. But our job is to be faithfully present within. Our job is to deal with what it is he gives us. Whatever task God gives you, your job is to stand. Your job is to trust him. Your job is to believe that God is going to encourage you, that he's going to hold you, that he's going to keep you. He's going to give you everything you need, even though you may not have all the answers. You can know without a doubt 
that his providential care is watching over you and that you are kept in the palm of his hand in Christ. Because whatever you are going through now is the biggest thing in the world to you because you're going through it. That's just the truth, isn't it? So as we sing this last song, let's think on that and let's say we thank you, Lord, in the midst of that. We all have our trials that we're dealing with right now. Perhaps nobody else knows what they are. But the righteous shall live by his faith. Let's stand. Father, we thank you, Lord. As we close in this last song, prepare our hearts, prepare our minds. Thank you, Lord. Let's just sing together.